In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It's crossover day at the Georgia Capitol. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein. I'm here with co-host and fellow political insider, Patricia Murphy, to talk about the latest in Georgia politics. And Patricia, we're here live. It's crazy. Is this the first time we've been live together? I don't know if we're live, but we are in the same room. Well, I meant like in live, live in person. Yes, I'm looking at you and it's making me uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm still reading from my phone, as I say, and Patricia, we've got quite the week already. It started with Stacey Abrams' campaign kickoff, but first we'll get to the action unfolding right now across the street from the Capitol. We are in a kind of small cubbyhole in the Coverdale office building, legislative office building, but across the street. There's a lot of action going on yes. crossover day. A hive of activity. And what's crazy about crossover day is that the Senate Rules Committee put through more than 40 bills that could be considered today and voted on. The House Rules Committee this morning put through more than 20 bills that could be voted on. And it's one of those days you literally don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And you know that something kind of wild and crazy could just come out of nowhere. So you have to really be paying attention. You have to really know what they're talking about and follow it very very carefully. So I love a day like today. It's fun. Our listeners have to be a little bit forgiving because we're taping this at 4.30 on a Tuesday. So we might well be here for another six hours, maybe even longer. Um, So we don't know exactly what's going to happen in the next six or seven or eight or 12 hours. But we at least can tell you what's already happened. And for the uninitiated, let's talk about what crossover day means because Mm -hmm. it's this key legislative deadline where one proposal has to clear at least one chamber in order to move forward. But even if it doesn't clear a chamber, it doesn't mean it's dead. It doesn't mean it's dead. And it isn't just a theory that anything could happen. Literally yesterday, uh, Senator Jeff Mullis, who's the chairman of the Senate Rules Committee, he's the man who decides what does and does not get a vote on the Senate floor. Yesterday, he was uh, consoling a fellow senator whose bill didn't look like it was not going to make it through crossover day. He said, don't don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's like, I'll show you some of my shady bastard tricks later. (laughs) (laughs) And so he knows there are indeed shady bastard tricks that are employed in that building and probably will be between now and midnight. We should say Jeff Mullis, who's retiring um, after this term, is the longest-serving Republican senator in the in the Georgia legislature, and he knows his fair share of tricks. And as you mentioned, there's ways you can kind of sabotage or gut other bills that have already moved through and add your provisions on. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that later. But, you know, here's what we do kind of know is already dead. And it's hard to say anything is dead until it's actually dead. But we know that Legislative leaders have said Buckhead cityhood is not going to happen this year. I think there'll still be attempts for it to move forward, but Jeff Mullis is right in the middle of that because as the rules chair and as a sponsor of the measure, he's all over that. And also, voucher legislation. 
Speaker Ralston, and we talked about winners and losers a few weeks ago. That yep. was the big loser because the proponents of school voucher legislation sent out flyers targeting more than a dozen Republican state lawmakers. It backfired that when the Speaker of the House says this bill ain't going anywhere, you can generally trust that it is not going anywhere. <laughs> We pretty much know that that's not going anywhere. I don't think that Speaker Ralston left even a door cracked on that one. It was uh, very much closed. Um, but you look at something like Buckhead City legislation, that really has the active opposition from leaders here at the Capitol. And so you have to start to think, whose interest is it to move something like this? What kind of horse trading needs to happen? And it would have to be a heavy lift to get something like Buckhead City passed the Republican leaders who don't even want it. So um, still we know that things go through that nobody expected. Things go through that uh, leaders have said they didn't even want, including some bills that we're looking at passing today. So um, we really don't know what happens on Crossover Day until it's the day after Crossover Day. And you mentioned um, horse trading. I'm glad you said Literally, that. Literally. Because yeah. horse racing measures um, got blocked, at least in an initial vote in the state Senate. We're in this weird limbo period where we know it'll be brought back up later on tonight. We don't know what the outcome is. My bet, <laughs> my, my, my bet is it'll actually pass. I think um, Jeff Mullis, who is the sponsor of this constitutional amendment um, to allow voters to vote on horse racing, I think they'll have the votes to get it through the Senate. I have no idea what will happen in the House later on, but... It failed in an early vote, kind of a test vote in the Senate earlier today. Um, but if there's anyone who's good at arm twisting, <laughs> it, it might be Jeff Mullis, who is you know one of the most powerful Republican lawmakers, Republic, lawmakers in general under the Gold Dome, because as the Rules Committee chair, he sets the agenda on what bills move forward and what don't. Yes. Also, since it's his last year, um, these people are just people, you know, and they do do favors for each other. And they do have uh, sentimental uh, bones in their body. And so I wouldn't be surprised if people did something for Jeff Mullis because it's his last year. Um, also, I've heard of a number of scenarios that make gambling this year look like more of a possibility than we've seen in the past. A lot of those details haven't been made public, but I would not be surprised if gambling is one of the things that we've been waiting to happen for years, but actually does happen this year. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because if there's been a sea change um, in the last 10 years, you know, it used to be that conservative lawmakers, Republicans in general, voted instinctively against expanding gambling, right? It was, it was a vice. It was seen as something that would lead to more crime and more uh, higher divorce rates, addiction, right? And, and there might be some evidence, especially when it comes to addiction, that of course it does. There's people who have gambling problems. Um, but at the same time, to me, there is this know how many people remember, but in the Republican primary in 2012, there was a non-binding resolution. Ask, I know that sounds nerdy, but it asked Republican voters whether they would support expanding gambling to allow legalized casinos if it funded the Hope Scholarship and other education. And that passed. It yeah. narrowly passed. Of course, it was non-binding. It didn't have any import other than just symbolically. But to me, that was the beginning of this cultural shift we see. And then Earlier today, the biggest supporters of, of legalizing horse racing were all, not just Republicans, but very conservative Republicans. Jeff Maltz, Brandon Beach, the pro-Trump uh, Republican from, from Alpharetta, they're all talking about it as an economic development incentive, not as, a, um, not as a culture war type issue. And they were also saying that, hey, you're not voting to legalize horse racing, you're just letting the voters vote on legalizing horse racing, because this is a referendum that would be on the November ballot. Yeah, there are a couple of pieces uh, to what you just said. So 
lawmakers letting voters decide on something is always an easier vote than them voting yes or no on mm-hmm. something. So that's an easier way to get to yes, although it does require two thirds in both chambers. So it's a heavier lift, but it's a little bit easier for everybody to say, well, it's not me. I'm not deciding. I'm letting you decide. You decide, voters. So um, in that way, it's an easier lift. Um, also, I think once Georgians legalized the lottery and they did that uh, as a way to fund the Hope Scholarship, that to me pulled a lot of the um, kind of conservative energy out of that argument. That really seemed to be, once you sort of opened the door to some kind of legalized gambling in Georgia, that really did open the door to other kinds of legalized gambling. And then I think that technology has had a huge part in the cultural change because really anyone can legally bet on just about anything online right now. And the question is, is the state of Georgia reaping the benefits of that? Or are we just leaving money on the table? And then once you're once you're betting online, you may as well let a horse racing get going. So, um, you know, also for some of the smaller and mid-sized cities around Georgia, the pitch from these big gambling conglomerates to bring in a casino to your smaller community, have all of that economic development, have all of those jobs, that has really gathered the attention of lawmakers in more rural parts of Georgia that are looking for ways to bring jobs to their communities that are shrinking in many cases. So there are there are a lot of reasons for lawmakers to get to yes on this that feel like they've accumulated this year. And there's a cultural aspect of it as well, right? The shows and the art and the the performances that come along with having that sort of venue that might not otherwise come to um, smaller places and then come to Atlanta, but might not necessarily go to mm-hmm. Columbus or to Macon if there's a casino there. Is there art at casinos? <laughs> well, there's, I, I just meant, <laughs> I just meant with casinos, there's shows, right? There's, uh, you know, dances and. I've never been to a racetrack. <laughs> not a racetrack, a casino, if okay. they go that far. Race, racetracks are a different story. Yes, this is a serious conversation. But it's funny because I've talked No, you're to, right. You're totally yeah, right. There's shows. Um, I've talked, and look, that's one of the reasons why when the last big casino push happened, there was, there was, groups of artists that were against it because they were worried that it would provide more more competition you know to some of the um to some of the venues here but that's all oh, interesting story. okay yeah. so so some some legitimate backstory that you're filling in there, there. You thank go. you so much i'm glad that your mocking <laughs> question <laughs> got turned on its rear um no but look we really thought this was going to happen years ago i mean i remember our our ajc colleagues Scott Truby went out to all these casinos. It was a great trip for him, but he went and reported on casinos. I think it was in Massachusetts near Boston. Maybe there was one in Illinois, but he went to a, a tour of all these casinos to talk Love about that. how, yeah, how um, MGM or Wynn or all these, you know, all these companies that have legitimately scouted Georgia. MGM at one point uh, promised to build a $1 billion plus casino in downtown Atlanta, right near underground. Um, and then when really started, you know, they hired a legion of lobbyists one one uh, one legislative session to really push the casino issue. Now it's quieter, mm-hmm. especially on the casino front. Yep. Um, but, you know, we remember the beginning of the session when Speaker Ralston said he feels like there's more traction for legalizing some aspect of gambling than any other year in the last decade. So... Yes. And those are, you know, to me, that is sort of like the signal or the trial balloon that Ralston doesn't put up uh, for no reason at all. There's usually a reason behind what he's saying. And so um, there is, isn't he? He's very like he's very calculated. He knows what he's he's, knows what he's He's doing after all these years. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I wouldn't be surprised. You know what has surprised me this year about crossover day is that a lot of the really big ticket items, the tax cut, 
critical race theory, um, the issues about uh, bringing up divisive issues in schools. A lot of the stuff feels like it's already been dispensed with. Constitutional carry, like yeah. the big ticket items are sort of already across the budget. the budget. And of course, if something got across one chamber last year, it's a two-year session. So it just has to have gotten across one of the chambers one of these years. And so um, I'll be so interested to see. That's going to create kind of a traffic jam, I feel like, for the next couple of days coming up until we get to the end of the session. That's why we begin. We have to watch closer than ever. Um, a couple more issues coming up across for today. This is maybe the easiest vote of, of lawmakers. Um, there will be a – the governor will soon sign into law legislation that will suspend gas tax collections. This will easily pass both chambers. If there's a no vote in the Senate, it'll be news, right? For sure. Um, governor can't wait to sign it, and Democrats are lining up behind it too because everyone wants to show that they're doing something – to fight higher gas prices. Yeah, and that also has been tagged on to the war in Ukraine as yep. a way to sort of give uh, give Georgians some breathing room uh, with the knowledge that gas prices are certainly likely to continue to rise uh, if the war in Ukraine continues to go on and it doesn't show any signs of stopping. And so I feel like uh, once the war in Ukraine really, um, really got uh, serious so quickly, that was when the momentum really broke to start to to focus on this issue, and it, it looks like it's going to go quickly. Governor Kemp can say, hey, I don't know what Washington's doing, but here in Georgia, we're suspending the gas tax, and Democrats can say, we voted to do it as well. So it's kind of one of those rare bipartisan... Yeah, even Nancy Pelosi is pushing for something like that <clears throat> up in Washington. So for sure, it's definitely a bipartisan issue because there are a number of reasons that people are getting on board to do it. Now, the opposite of bipartisan is <laughs> the next legislation we'll talk about. Can't wait to see where this is going. The election, uh, the latest election uh, yeah. bill that our colleague Mark Nisi is all over. He broke the story about the, the measure being introduced with Republican leadership a few days ago. Um, this is not nearly as far-reaching or sweeping as legislation last year, SB 202, that we spent a lot of time talking about, writing about, and, and the imp impacts that we're still uh, beginning to understand because we really haven't had a real test of that legislation yet. The municipal elections were an early kind of foray, but we'll see really mm -hmm. how that election legislation will play out um, in the May primaries in November. But Mark wrote about a new effort um, to revisit those laws. And this is despite Speaker Ralston, Governor Kemp, Lieutenant Governor Duncan, all saying that they didn't think that we needed to have, that Georgia needed to revisit any election laws because they've been touting last year's changes as effective. Um, so this measure would not have, you know, again, not sweeping changes, um, but among the provisions, it would say that the GBI has more authority to investigate um, so-called election, you know, instances or alleged instances of election fraud. Yeah, that is actually a piece that Speaker Ralston has been talking about since SB 202 passed. There was, uh, there were certainly Republicans who felt like they wanted to take the first right of investigation away from Brad Raffensperger and give it to the GBI. Now, it has to be said that the GBI already has agents who do election fraud investigations, and they do that in tandem with the Secretary of State's office. So this isn't a huge change, but it does give the GBI more authority than the Secretary of State's office. And I think that's uh, that's sort of an ongoing dispute between Rolston and Raffensperger that's continuing to get pushed by Rolston, and he's certainly got the power to do it. And Governor Kemp, I mean, um, it's hard to find a Republican, senior Republican, who doesn't want to weaken Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, um, even though he's, you know, looks like, in, at least according to the 
recent polls, internal polls we've seen, it looks like he's in okay standing against Jody Heiss, the Trump-backed challenger. Um, you won't see many Republicans going up to try to champion Brad Raffensperger and try to expand his office's power. Instead, both Governor Kemp and his primary challenger, David Perdue, have both embraced this sort of election police, whatever provision they call it, to weaken Raffensperger's office and to show uh, Trump supporters who believe that there is widespread election fraud, even though there is no evidence of that, and bipartisan election officials say that that didn't happen, uh, it gives them some a talking point of the campaign trail to say, now we've strengthened our laws. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's something that I feel like uh, Republican elected officials feel like they still have to continue to deliver for that GOP Republican base, because as far as SB202 went, it has not budged the numbers among Republican voters who believe that the 2020 election was stolen and that the next election is still suspicious. And I think that is deeply alarming to Republican officials. They need their Republican voters to believe that the next election is fair and square so that they will go out and vote in it. And it did that. They were not able to make that case in 2021 for uh, the runoffs as hard as they tried. And so um, I feel like they are still feeling the need to go back to voters at these Saturday GOP county meetings and say, don't worry, we've got another bill coming. It's all going to be fine. Um, the reality is that this bill really is not a gigantic um, overhaul the way 202 was. Um, even the concept of an election police force like David Perdue is talking about is not in this bill. Um, but you certainly do have uh, state uh, agents coming in and conducting election fraud investigations um, through the GBI, which I think is is different um, and is something that will uh, will probably be a bit chilling to local elected uh, local elections officials. Um, but we'll see. Some of this also is just a little bit of cleanup from the SB202 mm -hmm. bill. Some of those deadlines that lawmakers imposed on election officials were so tight when to report back results, they just literally couldn't physically turn those around. And so some of these changes are reflected, um, are reflecting election officials saying we need a little more breathing room on this. And Democrats are almost uniformly against it. Uh, we don't know how that vote will play out, but we can assume it will pass because Republicans have the numbers. Um, but we did see a protest at the state capitol just a few hours ago um, with students who are opposing, among other things, any sort of new election laws. And as we reported in the jolt, your morning roundup of the news that shapes <laughs> the agenda of Georgia politics. Jay, was that okay? I didn't write it down, so count a mediocre, but keep going. <laughs> but in the morning jolt the other day, we we uh, we had the story about how Fair Fight, Stacey Abrams' founded um, political organization, and a number of other left-leaning groups were putting together a seven-figure campaign. So big money behind this to try to um, inform voters and oppose, inform voters about these changes and also oppose it. Um, even though it seems destined to be signed by Governor Kemp if it makes it that far. Yeah, it definitely seems destined to be, sub it signed, be signed by Governor, Governor Kemp. Kemp. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think we can, yeah. whenever this podcast airs, this is probably going to get signed by uh, Governor Kemp. But I think it is as much a conversation about this piece of legislation as it is pushback against SB202, that ongoing conversation with Georgia voters from these from Democratic and voting rights activist groups to say, do not forget what happened in uh, 2021 and that legislative session with SB202. Not, don't forget about it because Republicans are trying to uh, block access to the polls is their argument. And also 
Don't forget about it because we need to talk about how to cast your ballot. Now, voter education is a huge piece of what those, those Democratic groups are doing because they really do have concerns that 202 is going to make it harder for some of their base to get to the polls. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll go from the legislative realm to the campaign trail. This is Politically Georgia. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your co-host, Greg Bluestein, here live and in person. I shouldn't say live, but it feels live. I'm here in person <laughs> well, it, with co-host Patricia Murphy. I am alive. <laughs> we are alive. I just had coffee, so I'm very much alive right now. And um, I might look, you, the jittering. Legs, is that a nervous tick? What no, is that? it's just, I literally. His legs are just I bouncing downed, up and down. I downed a Starbucks okay. thing that's over there, and it was really good. Oh. Um, so I should remind myself to do this a few more times before shows. Jay, Jay, Jay's enjoying this. Our producer, Jay Black over there, who's also in person. Jay First, is also in person. This is such a treat. With no microphone. He has no microphone, but he has that voice, that yeah. booming voice. that I, I feel like you could actually, your voice could reach the house floor across the street and you would still be able to make a speech Order. from here. So <laughs> listeners, um, loyal listeners, Jay is somewhat newish still to the AJC, a couple months. Um, those who haven't met him in person because of his amazing, booming voice feel like he might be in his 60s and he might be this like really? grizzled. Yeah, just because he sounds. And then I have to tell people, like, Jay's like Jay's a super a, Jay's millennial. Jay's a millennial. Yeah. yeah. That's our next game. Guess my age. Guess Jay's age. <laughs> so we won't give it away because we were, we were disclosed it earlier. But I can tell you, we're both older than Jay. Yes. So that's, a, that's your hint. Um, we have to remind you not only to subscribe to the AJC at subscribe.ajc.com backslash subscribe? podcast. Oh. Podcast? Yes. I got it right. We're, we're, we're ad-libbing, guys. Um, for 99 cents, what a deal, but also <laughs> to read the morning jolt. Because yes. that is where, as we mentioned earlier, that we try to set the agenda, set the stage for what is important in Georgia politics. Yes, but you do need to be an HHC subscriber to get the jolt. And that is something that I have people ask me a lot. They're like, well, how do I just sign up for the jolt? You actually need to be an AJC subscriber, although you can do five samples per month. Subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. Your first month of unlimited digital access is 99 cents. There you go. That's so easy. It's just 99 cents. I know. What a deal. I mean, we're just basically giving away our content. At least for a month. At least yeah. for a month, and then we got you. Um, so let's talk about the campaign trail, because we both were at Stacey Abrams' first real event. She's had, a, she's had one or two other events in, in person. She uh, rolled out some labor union endorsements a few weeks ago. Of course, she qualified last week, but this week was her big kickoff. And she started in Cuthbert, she went to Warner Robins, and then she had this big main event late Monday night. 
in West Atlanta. A couple hundred people showed up to this rally. We saw Stacey Abrams. We haven't seen that yet this election cycle. She rolled out a new campaign speech, basically a new reason for running, in which she said, I'll paraphrase here, but she essentially said she learned a lot from her defeat in 2018, and now she's more ready to run than ever. I did the work, and now I want the job. So she feels like she is prime for this run, uh, and she was pretty unsparing in her criticism of Governor Brian Kemp. Yes, she really walked a fine line between sort of reintroducing herself to voters and even introducing herself for the first time to Georgia voters who weren't here uh, four years ago, which is a number of Georgia voters. So she's introducing herself. There were a lot of talk about her own family. Her parents were sitting in the front row. All five of her sisters and brothers were in the front row. Um, nieces and nephews, they were all there. And so it was a very family-friendly. It's like a homecoming. It was like a homecoming. And she talked m- much more about her own family than I'd ever heard her talk before. Um, speaking in terms that parents could relate to, talking about her nieces and nephews who weren't in the classroom during COVID and uh, some of whom uh, really were struggling. Also talked about her father's own struggle um, with cancer and her need to get him to a hospital quickly. And then that segued quickly into a policy discussion about the, the very real fact that Georgians who live two hours away from Atlanta wouldn't have had that same choice that she has by living here in Atlanta. So really getting into issues about rural health care, Medicaid expansion, and tying all of that to her own personal story, which didn't happen a lot actually in 2018. She probably got some feedback from voters and consultants to say, why don't you sort of open the door more to your own life so that people can connect with you more? And so that was on display and it was a very warm, friendly tone in that way. But the line she was walking is that when it comes to Republicans and Governor Brian Kemp, absolutely ripped Brian Kemp. We need a governor who doesn't leave it to every single school system to figure out what they want because he's too lazy or too inept to decide what should be done. And you want to talk about striking a nerve. You and I both yeah. heard from Republicans who said, what? <laughs> if we said that, we would, you know, yeah. no, we nobody can say, say that and get away with it. I think it was the... Much more even than the inept line, it was the lazy line, yes. right? I mean, she's, look, Democrats have called Brian Kemp all sorts of names, but we haven't really heard them say he's lazy. Yeah. Because that's something that really, his work ethic oh, man. is unparalleled in that sense. I mean, he's the guy who slept on couches on the campaign trail down in Tifton and would wake up early in his Crocs and, and respond to constituents and look at the obits in the Walton County newspaper and reach out to the family members. He prides himself. And he really does do that, he does, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, that's in the forthcoming book Flipped out next week. <laughs> um, but, but no, he does, he does pride himself on that, um, on that aspect of him. So I felt like that was what really struck the nerve more than the insulting his intelligence or calling him inept. It was calling him lazy. Absolutely. Because if I had a dime for every time Governor Brian Kemp talked about hardworking Georgians, um, I wouldn't need this job. Actually, I would be independently wealthy and I would just listen to your podcast for fun. (laughs) I would just be talking to myself or yelling at Jay occasionally. Exactly. Um, But when he talks about hardworking Georgians, he's casting himself as one of those hardworking Georgians. When he's in his campaign videos and um, even when he's walking around the Capitol, guess what? He wears cowboy boots. Mm -hmm. And he is not a smooth smoothly polished CEO like David Perdue he really does present himself as sort of an average guy um, and I think that really is who he is but along with being sort of an average guy it, it, he 
describes himself, he, he presents himself, and he really does keep the schedule of somebody who is a hardworking Georgian, in his own words. And so um, to be called lazy just set his uh, supporters off. Let's, let's go back to Stacey Abrams here, because um, you mentioned this earlier, but when she started talking about her nieces and nephews struggling during the pandemic, we both kind of looked at each other, because she started talking about school issues. And, you know, one of her bigger vulnerabilities is the fact that she doesn't have kids, right? She's a single woman. And Brian Kemp in 2018 made it appointed, didn't ever insult her for not having kids, but made it very pointed that he was going to go around the state with his three teenage daughters and his wife and show voters that he understood what they were, their struggles, their family, you know, whatever family issues they're going through, because he was also raising three teenage daughters. And we saw earlier this this election cycle, Stacey Abrams gets a lot of pushback for that incident in the schools where she was photographed um, without a mask around a bunch of kids wearing masks. Um, we can only assume, because we didn't get a chance to ask her about it afterwards, but that she understands that this is a vulnerability in, in a sense that, that, um, you know, that people are going to wonder, especially after the pandemic, how is she going to be the leader of the state? in terms of education policy, how is she going to help set this policy if she didn't go through the re- what the rest of us parents went through with the pandemic and having kids at home and all that? And she was trying to connect with voters saying, hey, I do understand because my nieces and nephews, my 15-year-old niece who lived with her during the pandemic also is going through those same struggles. Am I kind of capturing that right? I think that's exactly right. I do think it is incredibly unfair, the standard that female voters, I mean, female candidates rather, Mm -hmm. are held to, including Stacey Abrams in this case, or any female candidate who does not have children. And we've seen a number of those candidates. here. Karen Handel here. Karen Handel, um, Kelly Loeffler. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is this sort of unfair expectation of saying, but you don't have kids, can you really relate to me? Whereas there are, I feel like there are single men candidates running all over this country who act like cowboys and people just think that's cool. You know, you're like John Wayne all of a sudden. Um, but so, but there is this, uh, this belief that female candidates need to prove that they're relatable and nice and understand family issues, but you don't have to have your own children to understand, um, the struggles that families go through. I mean, single women are parts of families, you know, they have their own families, they have their own brothers and sisters. Stacey Abrams certainly does. And I think it was really smart of her because the way she talked about it was very sincere. These were not talking points. Uh, her niece lives with her parents and then all of them were living with her. And so this is something she lived firsthand she saw firsthand and so I think it is uh it's her real experience and opening the door to those kinds of um authentic moments I think is really important for all candidates and it seems especially important for somebody like Stacey Abrams who voters I think need to get to know a little bit better and she's giving them a chance to do that yeah and um I think an important part of this discussion too and I don't know how much she'll bring it up in, in this campaign, but it certainly came up a lot in the last campaign, which was she sponsored kinship care re- legislation, basically allowing people who weren't direct relatives, grandparents, aunts, you know, uncles, whoever, you know, extended family, uh, more privileges uh, to raise kids who weren't their sons or daughters directly, right? And that was a, that was a key part of, of her 2018 campaign because she also was able to prove that, hey, even as a Democrat, 
even as a member of the minority party, she, she pushed this legisla legislation through. Um, but I want to get to another big part of that speech, which was you mentioned it earlier, the really personal story about, about her father. We hadn't heard that. Um, she had very rarely, if ever, shared that before. It will be a staple of her speech, uh, of her campaign trail speech. You're going to hear it a lot. You'll probably see ads about it. But her own father's struggle with, with uh, prostate cancer and how at a point in the pandemic, wakes up, her mother's worried about him, touches his skin, feels it cold, clammy. Um, he's going into, he's on the verge of sepsis. Mm -hmm. She's able to call the ambulance easily, you know, quickly get him to the hospital. He stayed in the hospital for eight days, got the care he needed. But her point is, hey, if you, if you live in rural Georgia, if you live in Cuthbert, where yes. her first stop was, there aren't hospitals within an easy distance. That hospital, she, she had her first event in Cuthbert in front of a hospital that closed down in the middle of the pandemic, at the, actually the opening months of the pandemic, uh, at a time when the community needed it the most. Uh, because even with federal infusion of, of relief funds, it still wasn't enough to avert financial ruin. Yeah, and I was down in Cuthbert um, last year and uh, was still hearing stories from people about uh, people who live in Cuthbert. One person in particular had to wait 45 minutes for an ambulance to come. They were in an emergency situation and passed away. Um, it is it is literally life and death for these communities. And Cuthbert is just one of hundreds of Georgia towns that are far enough away from a hospital um, that they are now, some people are facing the fact that maybe I need to leave this place. If somebody is older, if they have the means to leave, maybe they will. It's just hollowing these communities out from the inside. And when you talk about Medicaid expansion, it's a choice that Georgia Republicans have made not to expand Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act. Other Republican states have done it and uh, done it uh, largely successfully without the sort of like the looming balloon payments that uh, some Republican states were afraid of. It is a popular issue. It's a bipartisan issue. I think Stacey Abrams knows it's such a popular issue among Georgians that on her website, the second issue is about medical debt. The fact that she, through Fair Fight Action, helped pay off the medical debt of 68,000 Georgians. That's the topic of her first ad that's up. Mm -hmm. So we're going to hear about Medicaid expansion and healthcare affordability because that is a still a top issue for Georgians. It cuts across party lines and it's a choice that Republicans in the state, including Governor Kemp, have made to reject that federal money. There is a piece of state uh, money that would be required. And Republicans have said, we don't want to do that. We will, even here at the legislature, they find very minor targeted ways to expand Medicaid for individual subsets of people. There's a bill to expand Medicaid to um, new mothers from six months to a year. Last year, it was from zero to six months postpartum. So they're finding narrow targeted ways to expand. And they're sort of more and more, eventually, it almost feels like Medicaid will be expanded after we uh, kind of group all of these targeted expansions together but it's something that's that funny, i think abrams sees as a vulnerability for republicans and and a literal vulnerability for georgians that's interesting to think about like a sort of piecemeal um, expansion that ends up being a pretty much a full expansion uh, we know that governor kemp's plan is is a, is a piecemeal expansion it's fifty thousand, adding fifty thousand or so recipients to the roles through a um work work or activity requirement but that's been held up by the Biden administration, mm -hmm. um, who says, if you're going to do it, go ahead and do it. You know, if you're going to expand, you need to expand. You can't do these sort of half measures. Um, <clears throat> he's suing, so that, that legislation is, or, or that plan is still up in the air. But it strikes me, too, about Abrams with Medicaid expansion. Um, she, 
every every Democratic governor, gubernatorial candidate since Obamacare passed has made Medicaid expansion the centerpiece of their platform. Jason Carter did in 2014, Abrams did in 2018, and she's again doing it in 2020. But in 2018, Abrams also opened with a range of other issues because at the time she had to appeal to the left. She had to prove that she was the she had she had a formidable mm-hmm. Democratic opponent, Stacey Evans, and she had to prove that she was the you know, the, the liberal standard bearer. So she talked about decriminalizing marijuana. She talked about, she eventually talked about removing the Confederate faces of Stone Mountain. Um, she talked about, uh, a lot about gun control, like mm-hmm. a lot about gun legislation, which wasn't something you really heard in statewide campaigns at that point. Um, now, that speech last night, it, it touched on other issues for sure, but Medicaid was the through line. Medicaid expansion was the, was the main focus, at least to me. And in her qualifying speech last week, she mentioned in about a five or seven minute remarks, she mentioned expanding Medicaid six different times. So we already know that strategy. And we know that we know that with the pandemic, she's hoping that more Georgians are worried about public health care because they just went through a once, God willing, a once in a lifetime public health crisis. So it's really interesting to me to see her kind of even ratchet up. It was already a lot of focus in 2018. Now she's ratcheting it up even more. Yeah, I would love to see the internal polling that they've got that shows that this is such a potent political issue. Also because the Georgia governor is, it's a, across all states, the Georgia governor is quite powerful. It's a powerful post. It's one issue that Stacey Abrams can say, this would change overnight if I was the governor. This would change your life in this way if you vote for me. Um, It is increasingly important in rural communities, rural communities that we would typically think of as either where there would be low turnout among Democrats, uh, just not particularly activated, or people who are so conservative they wouldn't vote for Stacey Abrams. Could this slice off that crucial piece of the electorate that she didn't get last time. I think she knows, her campaign knows, and Democrats know they've got to broaden their appeal out past the metro areas. They've got to get into the rural areas to limit the gains of Republicans um, outside of the metro area. This could be an issue in their minds that helps to just narrow do that narrowly enough to, to bring in a win this time around. And the, and the challenge for Stacey Abrams is you know, as much as she wants to say this can change overnight, it still has to go through Republican legislature. Yeah. Right. In 2014, Republican lawmakers worried that Nathan Deal would lose to Jason Carter, changed the law to say that only the legislature has the final say on expanding Medicaid. So um, she'll get asked plenty more about how she plans to work with the Republican-controlled legislature to expand Medicaid because a lot of things could happen. But one thing that we are almost certain will not happen is Democrats taking control of the state legislature. The redrawn district lines make it nearly impossible for Democrats. Um, They'll pick up a few seats, Mm -hmm, but it is very unlikely that they will take control of the legislature. So she'll have to work with Speaker Ralston. She'll have to work with whoever the lieutenant governor is, whoever the Senate majority leader is, um, to try to expand Medicaid if she's elected. It's kind of a, I'm sure to her, it's across that bridge when it comes to it. But... When I've asked her that about that before, she's brought up circling back. She's brought up kinship legislation. She's brought up um, other other areas in the Georgia legislature where she's been able to prove as the House Minority Leader um, in the earlier part of last decade that she can work across party lines to pass priority legislation. Yep. You know what I think is interesting about the issues that she's digging into ahead of this election because she does not have a Democratic primary? These are not sort of like those big 
ticket kind of emotional issues. It's not the culture war. It's not digging into being sort of the antithesis of the culture war on the right. It is um, these bread and butter pocketbook issues, healthcare, education. She was talking about last night with COVID getting uh, kids back into school, keeping them in school, getting their um, kind of their fundamentals back up. You just didn't hear any of that culture war stuff last night. And one of the the supporters of Stacey Abrams, who I talked to, who is at absolutely a Democrat, otherwise she wouldn't have been there for Stacey Abrams. But her supporters said, you know, I really believe that Stacey Abrams could be the glue that brings the state back together. I feel like the leadership today are trying to divide us and trying to drive us away from each other. And Stacey Abrams could bring us back together. Abrams is a very polarizing uh, figure among, especially among Republicans, but that's the message she is leaving voters with. And I think that's really interesting. If you ask Kemp supporters what kept them awake in 2018, it was this duality of Stacey Abrams. They were worried that she would brand herself both as this unapologetic progressive warrior and as the centrist who is pragmatic and willing to work across party lines. And right now she's trying to do the very same thing. That is all the time we have for today's show. Please rate, review, share, and subscribe to this podcast to help us grow the show. We'll see you on Friday on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.